Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosser. It gives me great pleasure today to welcome, for the first time to Viewpoints, Angela Falkenberg, who's the president of the Australian uh, Primary Principles Association. Uh, welcome to Viewpoints, Angela Falkenberg. Oh, thank you, Henry. Now, um, before we get into your very interesting uh, work as the president of what we call APA, uh, your career, what led you into teaching in the first place? Uh, you know, Henry, it wasn't a first choice. I actually applied to join the police force. Oh. Uh, I, I don't mind a bit of chaos. <laughs> but um, but what happens is I failed the physical because I wear contact lenses. Oh. And back in the day, you had to have 20-20 vision. So um, I ended up doing an arts degree at uni. You know, I wasn't really sure what I wanted. And then, um, yeah, I'd always like children swapped into an education degree and then in that, and I was one of the first during the four-year degree, mm. um, I went to a lecture about a person working in a remote First Nations community and I was hooked. Mm. I just was hooked and I majored in Aboriginal education. And, and you ended up uh, in the Northern Territory. What is it uh, that you learnt working up there? Because there's so many misconceptions about our First Nations people amongst too many people. Yeah, well, look, I've got to tell you, first of all, Henry, I, I majored in Aboriginal education here. I studied the language, the Pitindara language at university, so mm. I could speak. I did my final prac and then did not get a job in South Australia. And what I later found out is my application had fallen behind a filing cabinet. Oh, and so I, I've had a lot of interesting <laughs> things. So I, I applied for jobs in Queensland at NT, ended up in the Northern Territory in a small school closer to Uluru than um, Alice Springs and was genuinely shocked to find, this is the you know early 80s, mm. but the community was living under sheets of iron. And... Yes. It was such a paradox for me to to see people in such poverty and yet some of those children I taught were the cleverest I've ever had in a class. So um, that was interesting. And what did I learn from that? Oh, look, if we've got time, I'll tell you a little funny story. Yeah, sure. So, so the Northern Territory Department had decided that very few schools uh, from the Barclay region, we were down south, had competed in the Steadford. So... My colleague, being a pianist, was chosen that this is the you know end of January, that we would compete in the Darwin Steadford in May mm. as a result of his uh, as we left, he's going, if I could just say there was a lot of F words happening. And I was new saying, So, you know, what's happening? And he said, Well, Princess Michael of Kent had toured the territory the year before, been appalled at the lack of music instruction, donated some pianos to schools that could use them. He said, well, it's free. Yes, I can play. Send me a piano. Because <laughs> you know what teachers are like with free stuff. Yes. And actually couldn't really play. So we are now tasked with preparing kids. But I, I had done Year 12 music. I went to a phone box, rang my mother, who went to my old music teacher's house, who sent up recorder music. We got recorders, skilled and drilled two hours a day, and we won the Darwin Steadford. But there you go. So... Again, kids living under sheets of iron with appalling health who, when given opportunities, they were magnificent. And that was the learning from me is the power we have as teachers to literally change um, outcomes for kids. Yeah, quite an amazing thing. Now, um, 
you, you've, you've had a stint as leadership. Uh, you've, you're in other leadership positions now. A lot of people are not that interested in taking on school principalships, which is, which is really sad. Um, you, your time as a school leader. Yeah, you know, how I don't recall anyone ever saying to me, you should be a leader. So, you know, and I think mm. particularly for women, we we're wait for someone to invite us. And I'll be honest, I was actually working with some men who weren't weren't particularly in love with their jobs. Like they were quite they muddled. Mm. And I thought, well I can do better than that. And um and people said, <laughs> well why don't you? Fair enough. <laughs> so oh okay. And look, it, you know, I think when I started it's very different to now. Um, I I remember being able to work a reasonable length of the day, like 8 till 5.30, you mm-hmm. know, it was quite good. My last school, I was there at half past six every day and I left at half past six at night. Mm-hmm. I was there on Sundays. I did work at home and not because I became more disorganised, but in order to, you know, the, the piece of work I value as a leader is the relationships and building capacity whether it's students, staff or, or parents. And so that's where the day work was, was with the people. And then the, the admin, et cetera, increasingly took more of my after-school time, if you like. Mm. And, and that's the thing which seems to be happening everywhere and um, there's got to be a limit. Now, you went on to, um, in leadership, to the South Australian leadership uh, in, in, in SAPA or the South Australian Primary Principals Association. For those people who are not familiar with uh, the South Australian system, uh, what are some of the features there in public education that we could take note of in the other states? Yeah, South Australia's had a, a really strong history of um, teaching for effective learning and very much um, an equity focus and also the role of student agency. Um, and that that hasn't always been allowed to stay at the forefront. And so I felt very privileged to be trained into leadership at a time when we're really focusing on you know, the student agency, um, what I call, you know, understanding the cause of the causes mm-hmm. that, you know, if a, if a child's attendance was due to um, hunger, you know, or their participation was less because they were hungry, whether it was um, with a breakfast program or in one of my schools, being able to activate local church groups, local service groups who could be with us and create the village. And I think... You know, South Australia, um, like all jurisdictions over time, the school has become the village. And so I think while there's often awareness that these things need to be addressed, too often it's left to the school. So, you know, South Australia, I, I remember Priority Projects, which was federal funding back in the 90s, to come together as a really great think tank around how will we um, lift lift outcomes for students by addressing equity? We've had great um, leadership development in high-performing outcomes. HPI was another one, um, but we don't hold we don't hold true to things over time. And and I don't know if that's your experience, Henry. Mm. That you can be involved in something great, and someone else comes along and says, "Now nah, we're doing we're doing purple now." Um, and I think that's a, a been a, a challenge for emerging and new leaders is to um, 
potentially not have had the benefit of some of the robust programs or even learning on the go where people trust you to make mistakes that, you know, they're not life-ending, but where leadership was a lot more, um, yeah, trusted in your local context that you could work things through and still be moving forward. I think now we have a quite... um, high expectations on leaders and I mean community, media, the whole lot that we're never meant to make a mistake and yet learning is all about productive failure. Mm, yes, and it, it certainly impacts on, on decisions people make now that they're so concerned about, you know, ticking all the correct boxes. Now, leadership coach and leading the recruitment and development of teachers in South Australia's Aboriginal and Arungu schools, what what did you find were the great needs people had uh, that you, you, you would focus on as a leadership coach? Uh, so th- this was when um, it was supporting improved literacy achievement and again it was a federal project and that back then you know my role as a leadership coach was to be with leaders in their schools who in the main knew exactly what was required but may but needed somebody to talk um, things through and so in that in that role, my job was to meet leaders at their point of need, you know, asking what would it take to do blah. I help prepare them for difficult conversations and also how to abandon unuseful practice because, you know, we often will take on something new and not cut something out at the bottom. So really that role was supporting leaders with confidence building and reminding them about why we're here. Because, you know, when you've got your head down, bum up and you're working, you kind of forget that the purpose is to make, um, for kids to have great learning experiences and staff, but also for workplaces to be a good place to go to. My role, though, with recruiting um, teachers to Aboriginal and Aboriginal schools, uh, that was a fascinating project because back then teachers had to share houses so I wasn't just looking for quality teachers. I was looking for people who could share a house and be self-sustaining given the remote space. Um, but also I could I had four weeks where people were paid to come to an induction program, you know, four weeks, and including one week on country. So those teachers were really prepared, whether it was around managing health issues, you know, communicating effectively, with um, with parents, we don't do that anymore. And I, I'm really proud of the teachers that I recruited and how many are in leadership now. You know, I've had long, sustained, fabulous careers, but they went in really confident. And I think that was, that was a joy to be in that job then and see graduates, um, you know, end up being really confident teachers. Mm, absolutely. Now you're moving to the present. You're the president of APA, um, Australian Primary Principals Association. It's an interesting organisation, as you'd know, Angela, being cross-sectorial with diverse and at times conflicting interests. Uh, your approach to making it work as best it can. Well, I think it's, um, you know, APA is 7,600 primary schools across Australia, you know, Catholic, independent and public. And actually the, what what we have in common is far more than any differences. And so APA has a really clear vision, you know, it's to mm. see primary principals esteemed, 
confident and thriving in their leadership of what we're calling global standard education and in every Australian primary school. And what unites us is, you know, a desire to increase some of the disparities. So, for example, um, you know, a primary child who in year six earns uh, per head, they're worth $3,100 less than when they go to secondary. We have smaller leadership teams and yet some very complex issues to address. We're seeing the rise in mental health and disengagement very clearly around, you know, age eight and nine, and we don't have the resources to address it well. And the other um, challenge that all primary schools are experiencing is the rise of NDIS providers wanting to have access to school space, We've got what I call the rise in labelling and it almost seems now that if the child doesn't have a label, the parent feels really left out. Yes. Um, and and whether it's, you know, a colleague in a very low SES community who is battling, um, you know, parents who are dysregulated and, you know, obnoxious to a very high SES school where the parents, they're battling parents who are taking them to the Human Rights Commission. So you've still got, um, you know, leaders dealing with more self-centred people in different ways, but they have different tools. So it might be verbal abuse or it might be a legal writ. So I think what, what I love is when we get principals together who are willing to be, you know, vulnerable, but to say, yep. this is actually a challenge for me. We're all go, wow. I have a challenge too. It's not that one, but the effect on us is the same. Mm. So I, I love that I get to talk with leaders everywhere and their stories are so similar. Um, so focusing on the commonality is great. And, you know, we're invested in primary curriculum, having more play, join, engagement. We, we would like that we move to sample testing uh, rather than the great standardisation that is NAPLAN. Because, you know, we know what NAPLAN tells us, that in the main results align with SES. So, yes. you know, what might we do with that time and money to actually address some of the um, equity issues that are to do with, uh, that, that contribute to the performance? Mm. Now, you've got a master's degree in special education. Um, the recent Royal Commission uh, that, that looked at this area of... Um, the violence, disadvantage, mental health. Um, they came out with a, a divided opinion about just how we should address the issue of inclusion. Uh, and it's a big issue all around the country. Um, how do you view it? You know, I'm really pleased they were divided on the issue because it does replicate what parents think, what teachers and leaders think. You know, it's always about where, where's the child needs best met and actually focusing on their needs and again not the label for some parents they they prefer a, a smaller more secure environment for you know the reasons of their child um, for others absolutely they want a mainstream schooling but the challenge is to ensure teachers have what they need in order to serve that child well and a big one if we're going to move to more inclusion is a rethink of school design, not the physical environment. Um, at the moment, 
you know, schools, there's a certain meterage per child, you know, there are certain standards and this and that. We don't naturally have breakout spaces or chill out or cool down spaces. Um, You know, some children benefit from a lot more light, some want more Mm. intimate spaces. I think, you know, reaching an agreement about how the physical environment should look, ensuring teachers have access to support and training. Um, But also, I think going back to what, what does the profession bring, you know, there's such anxiety around some parents and worry about their child, you know, 20 years into the future and they're not kind of focusing on right here, right now. That child's doing pretty well. Um, and there's a, there's a tension all the time now that this anxiety brings to conversations with teachers. You know, Henry, I remember a parent whose child was diagnosed with global delay. Mm. He was the dearest boy. He was eight. He was the nicest little boy. But his mum could only focus on the fact that he might have to wear fluoro and be a tradie mm. because yeah. in her family, everyone else had had, um, you know, a high-level profession. And I said, he's eight. Goodness. You know, yes. we, don't, we don't know what's before us, mm-hmm. but how we can appreciate the child and ensure they have what they need in that moment is the role of the teacher, but they, do, they can't do it alone. They need support. Absolutely, and it's uh, well summed up. Time's on the wing. Um, I've never heard this term before, but maybe that's because I've led a, a sheltered life, although I wouldn't have thought so. Rational <laughs> optimist. That's a fascinating self-description, Angela. Um, tell us about it. Do you know, I, I was probably guilty of being a bit of Pollyanna through my <laughs> career as a teacher and a middle leader. You know, we can do this. You know, we'll be right. Yeah. But I, th- I think as whether it was age or wisdom or experience or moving into principalship, I became a rational optimist, which was taking that a realistic assessment of the present moment. You know, I can do lots myself and I can also burn out. Mm. So rationally assessing the resources and deciding what to take on, you know, and clarity about what it would take to achieve a goal or was it a worthy goal was an important development through my career. Um, and so my priorities and even my bucket list have adjusted accordingly. Um, <laughs> I'm no longer going to climb Mount Everest. To be honest, Henry, I discovered in a visit to La, La Paz, Bolivia, yep. that I really suck at high altitude. Uh. Um, but I also now, as part of that, rational optimism is I do know that relationships and the people piece is the most critical and, you know, be able to create teams that can work together, be together and have the strategies to manage their own grievances are so critical to to going forward. So the rational optimism really came about when I realised that I was you know, being a Pollyanna and <laughs> that that is just like, you know, grist, grist for failure, to be honest. Um, and that is matched by the clarity of purpose. And so, you know, I say to people, why do we do yard duty? It's not because, you know, duty of care and we have to, but it's actually about wanting, you know, students to have a quality supported play experience and access to adults who can help if they need it. So, that's that's how the rational optimism came about. You know, I'm always going to believe things can happen, but I'm conscious of the the need to be um, prepared and to have things in place to to make sure they do. 
Mm, makes good sense, and it's a, it's a good it's a good uh, thing to be. Angela, time's got away from us. Love to have you back on again because it's you're such a font of wisdom and experience uh, that. Uh, that um, we'd, we'd love our viewers, our listeners to share that with you. But I'd like to thank you for what uh, the contribution you've made to, to school education nationally and, uh, and, and with our First Nations people and uh, the inspirational person that you are in your current role as the president of APA. Henry, you are so lovely. See, that's nice. It's made my day now. And plus, hey, isn't it great to be able to talk about yourself? <laughs> always, always happy to do so. <laughs> and lo- lovely, lovely to listen to you. That was Angela Falkenberg, the president of the Australian Primary Principals Association and uh, an inspiring uh, public leader in education in our country. Mm-hmm.